You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. Primal Radio. We uh, had technical difficulties starting up. It hasn't happened in a while. But anyway, we have Burton Richardson. I'm really excited to have you on the show. And we've been shooting the shit for a couple of minutes because we just have, who knows, everything seems to go wrong right before the show, not a half hour before, <laughs> two seconds before. But thanks for coming on, Burton. I really appreciate it. I'm excited that, to have you on. And you're in Hawaii now. You've been in Hawaii for how many years now? 21 years. 21 years. 21 years. I born and raised in L.A. And then I was on a trip. I was teaching a seminar down for a guy named Daniel Doobie. He lives in an island called Reunion Island, which... If you're in South Africa and you go fly due east, you'll fly past South Africa over Madagascar and you keep going an hour and a half and there's a little island out there called Reunion Island. That's where Daniel is from. And that's where I went to see him to teach a seminar. Lo and behold, I met my wife out there. When she came back, we ended up getting married. She came to L.A. and uh, it was cold and wet. There's El Nino thing. So anyway... We decided we we're going to move to Hawaii and it's 21 years ago. And so it's like that. We're happy as can be. L.A. is not too bad, though, right? No, not too bad. Weather-wise, that's what I told her. She had just come back from teaching French in Germany. And it just was terribly cold, like one of the coldest winters they'd ever had. And she's from a tropical island. And she says, uh, wait, how's the weather in L.A.? I said, it's great. Then we get there and this El Nino thing hits and it just was raining and cold for months but it was good because then we ended up coming to Hawaii and it's been really good for us. I live on Oahu. Which oh, wow. Is the same wow. I've been to Oahu. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah? yeah for yeah. those who don't know, that's the same island where Honolulu and Waikiki is. But we live on the opposite side of the island. And then I teach in Honolulu because uh, we have a nice place to teach over there. Wow. I was going through all your stuff. You were so fortunate to train with, I guess, who you've trained with. And when you grew up, did you do martial arts before you hooked up with Pastilio or you just happened to walk in there one day? And Yeah, I did not do any martial arts, but I was really interested. You know, I have pictures when I was uh, maybe three or four years old. And there's this picture of me. I got a little suit on and I've got a plastic samurai sword in my hand. <laughs> yeah, the word you said was fortunate. That is the word. The original Kali Academy, people would come from all over the world and they would come out for a week or sometimes two weeks, train and then go back and try to save money up for another couple of years. And the house I grew up in was about a mile and a half from the original Kali Academy. My first girlfriend actually took me there. She was already training there. She took me over there and that was it. I just fell in love with the places. So you'd known for a while, it was kind of already in your blood and you just never kind of pulled the trigger on it. So she put you, brought you in. I mean, that is just an amazing, because like I started off in judo in the YMCA, you know, in like 1973, wow. you know, and that's because really quite honestly, at least on the East Coast, we didn't have that many options. And in Southern California, there was a, a, the mecca of martial arts probably in the world. At that time, it was interesting that really there was only karate and maybe you could find judo. I'd never seen it, but uh, there's a local park I used to spend a lot of time at. And one evening when I was, Oh, about nine, 10 years old. I went around the gymnasium and I heard this sound emanating from the gymnasium, this boom, boom, really loud. And it was guys in reverse, they're in uniform, horse stance, throwing reverse punches and kiaing. And I was just so fascinated. But my father wouldn't let me train because he wanted me just to stick with sports. So I was a baseball player. I played basketball and football and all, but my main thing was baseball. And he just didn't want anything to interfere with that. You know, he thought it'd keep me in shape before playing baseball at college. Was it an easy transition for you? Did you enjoy it right away? Did you know what you kind of stepped into? Oh, I stepped in and I was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) And already being an athlete didn't really matter, huh? Oh, no. You know, I remember one of the first classes, it may have been the first class, Richard Basillo taught one night, Dan Inosano taught the other night. So it's two nights a week. You know, back then, the rule was inside class, you called them Sifu or Guru. And outside class, you called them by the first name as soon as you stepped out the door. So that's why sometimes if I use the first name without the Sifu or the Guru, it's, sure. you know, that's just how we used to do it. But he had everybody go line the wall, hand on the wall, and I want you to hold the sidekick out. 
So I go ahead and hold out my highest sidekick, which is the first time I'd ever done that. And I was a catcher, right? So my legs were fairly strong. I hold it out and it's maybe a little bit above knee level. And I'm looking around the room and everybody else has it up, you know, around chest level. They're holding their foot up there. And a couple guys have it up above their head. And I literally thought, do I have a physical problem? Like, I didn't realize <laughs> that there's something wrong with my body. I can't hold my leg up like everybody else. But it just turned out that everyone else was already trained. Everybody had trained in something else. And I had never done anything. You want to hear another story about how bad I was? <laughs> of course. Let's go. Of course. <laughs> let's hear it. Let's hear it. So imagine Grudan. Now, this is probably two months in or three months in. Let's see. Okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to be a hook kick now tech to the focus man. For some reason, I don't know why, he pointed to me to come up and demonstrate with him. So he holds the mitt about waist high. He's not moving. He's totally stationary. Yeah. He says, okay, do the hook kick to the mitt. So I stand there. I concentrate. I look. And I throw it. And it whiffs right underneath the mitt. I, don't, I do not even make contact. <laughs> not even contact. That's so I got. So, you know, this is embarrassing. But, of course, Grudan, he was like, oh, hey, no, no, no problem. Don't. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Here, try again. Try again. Try again. Here. Here, go. You know, and all these other guys are watching, you know. And the so. Pressure okay. is on. Pressure. So, okay. So, <laughs> I go to throw it again. And this time, I whiff over the mitt. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was horrible. I don't even remember anything after that. That was my skill level when I started. Look, and obviously, it's gotten a little better. A <laughs> little, little work ethic there has helped it. things and great guidance and all. So, so. so you grew up in Southern California. Did you like, have a normal childhood? Nothing precipitated you wanting to go into martial arts? We've always talked to guys, and maybe they got beat up or were picked on, and that might have been part of their story. You just it was just a normal, everyday thing, and then you just sort of had a desire to do it, right? Yeah, just normal, everyday thing after the abduction. I was actually abducted and that changed my outlook on the dynamics of what we do, you know, of, of living. Like I was just walking back from baseball practice and then there's some big dude. I was about, I'm thinking I was 10. I might've been nine, but yeah, there's some guy and he coaxed me over and before I knew it, he, he had me and that was not good. We'll just leave it there. It was a really, really horrible experience. All right. So what I learned was, A, there really are bad, bad people amongst us. Actually, that's why, you know, I wonder sometimes, why is this like, obsession I have with functional training to make sure everybody can actually use their training for real? And that's it. And I must say, I still think about that, like almost close to every day. It's still experience. a memory. That comes yeah. through. There's some trigger, something you'll see, or some interaction that you'll have with someone that just brings it right back. Yeah. And, you know, as bad as it was, I was well into my adult years. I must have been in my 30s or so when this thing is just hanging. You know, it's kind of a little PTSD sort of thing. And then I finally realized, you know, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be on the path I'm on. So for oh. some, you know, as odd as it sounds, and in the end, it turned out good for me you know and i think i'm able to help a lot of people yeah my whole perspective in teaching is i assume one of my students is going to be in a real serious serious situation so i'm training them to fight and just like we train mma fighters or boxers you know, we train athletes to get in there and fight you know when you're training a competitor you don't show them stuff just that's cool and fun that looks good right you know, we don't have time to do that we are on it to make sure they can perform well against someone who's trying to beat them up, even if under the particular rules. And self-defense, often it becomes entertainment to the point of, hey, let's just show them something that's going to be really cool and they're going to come back and all. But to me, the primary thing, we can have fun. It can be really cool, sure. but let's teach people to fight. So when, like I said, I had that assumption, someone's going to need it. And now after all these years of teaching, I've had so many people that have actually had to use their training. And fortunately, it's come out pretty well, especially like the knife thing. Uh, I think it's now seven people that have had to face really? a knife, and, and they all survived wow. it. When you're going back, when you're talking about teaching, is it tough to stick right to, for lack of a better word, the script? Like, hey, this is what's going to work. This is what's going to save your life. 
isn't it enticing to kind of show some of the magic, cool ninja stuff, for lack of a better word, you know, at a seminar? Because I, I know when I've done it, I'll show a move that is 100% functional. Poke to the eye, punch to the throat, whatever it might be. And then I'll follow it up with some kind of cool, you know, and they're like, they all want to do that cool thing. Exactly. You- like you say, it's so enticing. Because, you know, there are different ways to look at it, right? We can say, well, here's the functional, and here's the martial, and here's the art, right? Let's do martial now. Now let's do art. And uh, just thinking of one of my friends, Robert Follis, he, he unfortunately passed at his own hands. Wonderful, wonderful person with just, you know, the real demons there. But he used to say, this whole thing, there's not enough martial art. There's too much art martial. And <laughs> <laughs> that's good, right? So, right. uh I'll tell you what happened. I had a school in Hermosa Beach, California before I moved to Hawaii. And I was just teaching functional. Everything we were doing, just the functional portion. And one evening, that enticing thing came. This was the rationale I had. I said, they're doing JKD. They should know some of the long compound trapping. Low jab, ping choy, guachoy, trap, box out, back fits, you know, the whole thing. Long trapping combination. So I said, you know what? Tonight, we already did some sparring and all. Let's do that. And I'm going to show you some stuff hey, now let's do some more sparring and try to do it. And they found out, of course, at their skill level that they couldn't even come close to doing all that real long compound trapping, right? Okay, so I thought, I proved my point. They have to understand. I mean, it's going to be hard to do that, right? So I go back into office after class to get something. And I come back. Everybody was still at class. And guess what they're all practicing after class? The long trapping sequence. The long trapping sequence, yeah, right. Right, which they all failed that miserably. Yes. So what I do is sometimes I will show it and I'll say, well, each portion can be used. You know, if you trap and backfist, okay, that's totally functional. You can pull that off against a boxer. Now, if I've thrown a backfist and they push across, I can definitely wedge my hand through the other side and maybe go to the eyes or whatever. And so each portion is good. But then in the end, what I try to emphasize is, again, this is more like a coordination thing. And it reminds me of Southeast Asian dance or even Hawaiian Polynesian dance, where the dances were more to remember a sequence or remember a story. And so some of the Southeast Asian martial dances, you learn a whole bunch of techniques in a dance. And it's not like somebody throws a punch and you do all 14 techniques. It's just so you can categorize them and catalog them. And I must say, at this point, I had an experience about five years ago. I was sparring at the local boxing gym. And uh, it's a well-known, in Hawaii, it's well-known. It's a tough gym. And so my partner, big guy, and we're going at our heart. And one day I thought, you know, I'm going to try my trapping out on him. And, you know, I would pox out every once in a while, right? And every once in a while... Possibly, if he got static, I'd lopsaw, you know, pull and, and hit. And then this, I was going to try to do compound. And sure enough, I was able to go poxow, so slap his hand and punch. And then poxow, slap his rear hand, which was blocking my jab, and punch again and land. And I did it a couple times. And I was surprised. So <laughs> I was. I was surprised. <laughs> oh, was shit. Like, this what? what in the world? <laughs> right you slap the hit and the second one you actually grab the hand from the other side and so i go in i try it and that one failed miserably okay mm-hmm. so so i'm thinking about that the next couple weeks and all and, and then i think i'd bar with them again in the following week but the point is a few weeks later i just had this thing hey how about instead of pox selling and throwing a straight punch at him what if i pox out and throw a heavy back fist where he has to block across the center line with his rear hand and so i did that and i was able to go pox out lops out just like our drills. And so it just so happened, Stephen Richard Bastillo was doing a seminar, hosted for one of the days, like a couple weeks later. And when he came, I go, hey, and he actually boxed when he was growing up. He boxed at that boxing gym in Pololo. Yeah. And I said, hey, I actually pulled off a pox out, like double pox out, a pox out, lops out, and sparring it in the ring at Pololo. And he looks at me with this funny look. He goes, well, yeah, because you know how to fight. like oh so yeah so i must say some of the things that i threw away as i've matured and got more experience i realized yeah when we have the timing the fighting timing from all the the sparring and all 
I mean, then we can find where it fits in. It's just, it's not an end all be all. It's people think, oh, I, I know how to trap. So all I have to do is go and trap. If we're not a boxing ring. If it's a, a self-defense situation, a lot of times, you know, there's the posturing and they might shove you and all these things. It's not ballistic. If someone's throwing a ballistic combination, you're not going to trap them. Never. Never. Right. You know, going back as you mature and revisiting stuff, and maybe because you mature and you have a greater understanding of the totality of combat and, and where this stuff might fit in. And that just comes through that life experience. When we're younger, we don't have that. Personally, in my journey, that's been one of the most important things. Uh, you know, there's that phrase, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. Actually, you know this, but a lot of people don't realize if you ask them, they'll say, oh, yeah, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless. And they forget the add what is specifically your own. But actually, it's, there's four phrases. The first one is research your own experience, then absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. For myself, I kind of changed it a little bit in my mind to be instead of reject what is useless is uh, put those things you can't do now aside because maybe later you'll understand them. Right. Uh, good point. That's the way I look at it. For example, here's another good example is I was taking Shuto classes with Yori Nakamura, the mm. Shuto champion from Japan that uh -huh. came, became really, really, really good in JKB. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's amazing. He's in Japan teaching over there. He, he's great. So I remember we were learning these different things. And one day he showed this one lock. And even back then, it was in the 80s. I'm thinking, this is the late 80s, maybe 86, 87. I'm thinking, oh, man, there is no way. Even though my mind was really open to absorb pretty much everything, he did this one lock. And I'm like, how in the world, in my mind, I, you know, I went ahead and did it. Like, how in the world are you ever going to get that on a human being? This is just so complicated. It's like, you've got to take your legs, you're on your back, and he's in front of you, and you take your legs, and you throw it up, and you, you get his head and your arm between your, your knees, and you triangle your legs together, and you choke him. <laughs> because you've <laughs> never seen anything like this. So how is this Right, this possible? is never going to happen, right? It's yeah. a triangle choke. Actually, one of the easiest submissions to get to from the guard if you're good at it. But at that time, I just didn't have, again, the context and I just and, or the grappling skill at all. Yeah, we've never seen it in anybody rolling and all. And it's like, wow. So that's just another good example. So anytime I see anything, I mean, there's times when you look at stuff and go, OK, wait a second. Now, that's not going to work <laughs> right? well, without a doubt. There's there are things and it's pretty clear, you know, it's pretty clear. This is made up stuff that only works on, on a cooperative opponent who's actually not just cooperate. I mean, they're actually making sure they're putting themselves in position for you or falling down for you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, we should really keep an open mind. And personally, if I see something that's pretty absurd, I still look at and there's got to be something in there I might be able to use or this might be helpful. And. I'm, yeah, Jim, that doesn't you? last very long. <laughs> right, right. This I've done, true. right. I've seen it and you go, my God. You know, they might even start out kind of cool and you go, okay, let me buy into this. Let me keep an open mind. And then they just take a left-hand turn somewhere down the road and you go, there's no chance that that's ever going to work. Um, but right. Right. even with my best efforts, and then I've even prefaced it by saying, even if that guy can do that, I'm not that guy. So I have no business doing that. So. You know, that is such a good point because there are guys in jujitsu, for example, that have, you know, whether it's Eddie Bravo, Bravo's rubber guard, that takes a lot of flexibility. But oh, there yeah. are some guys under Eddie that do things, they're so flexible, they do things that Eddie can't do, as flexible as he is. Sometimes there are certain things, it's, it is the practitioner that can, the, the attributes that they have, physical attributes. And we just can't. We're not going to do it. It's not for us. Yeah, and there's body types. I mean, training with Higgin Machado all those years ago, uh, he would often say, I heard him said several times, you can't expect an elephant to fight the same way as an eagle and vice versa. You know, you can't tell the eagle, hey, just go, you know, just go smash past the guard like this because it's not going to happen. So we have to take in body types, age, you know, physical attributes and 
all those things to see what works best. And again, there we go, JKD, right? It's That's exactly first. right. Now, when you were at the Academy or the original Collie Academy doing this, did you realize that the greatness that was actually the talent that was there, or were you kind of oblivious to the whole thing? So I started training with those friends who were training at the Academy in 79, and then I I got to go see the go to the Academy and watch in 79, late 79, I think. And then I started the summer of 80. And when the first time I went, because the only thing I'd ever seen was karate, the first time I actually went to the Academy, first thing I noticed was, hey, they're not in uniforms. And I like that being a baseball player. I like that. And then as I continue watching, it was so athletic. You know, they're moving around and they're hitting the shields. They, and to me, it, it looked like athletics. And then as the class went on, he finally got to the collie portion. He said, okay, everybody grab a weapon. And there are all these aluminum swords and axes, all these things up on the, on the wall, like display. And they went up and they grabbed them off the wall and they start moving. They're doing numerado and they're moving. And at that point, you know, I was pretty successful as an athlete. And I looked at that and I was so in awe of how they were moving, number one. And number two, in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm never going to be able to do that. I don't see how I'm ever going to be able to actually do that. But I, it was, I was so in awe. So I, I realized there was something amazing happening. And then before I started, I went back again. And one night, Guru Dan was teaching. I watched. He was teaching that first night I went to. But that night, he went and did some empty hand when he went rapid fire. When right, take down, da, 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 da. And the same thing. I remember I was telling my friends, I'm like, I have no idea what he did, but it was awesome. In <laughs> <laughs> that time, did you know it's at, at some point in time that you wanted to teach or be an instructor or did they kind of put you up to it or did you fall into it? Yeah, I had no idea that I was going to teach martial arts. I just really loved it. And again, that thing in the back of my mind always from that experience as a, a youngster I had a drive to basically make sure that never happened again. <laughs> yeah, I really had a drive to learn. When I was in college, uh, I went to USC and I played baseball there. I made the mistake of I was a biology major and they offered me this honors program because you know I did well in school and they offered me this honors program as well. And it was the first year they were doing it. And they basically they wanted to make sure it was on par with you know any Ivy, Ivy League school. So they made it as hard as possible as mm. rigorous and demanding as possible so i'm a biology major plus i'm doing this honors program which is a four-year honors program which is so rigorous i mean imagine you had to read a novel and write a five-page report every week that was one of the classes and then i was playing baseball which took a lot of time and and all so anyway even though i knew i was should be studying constantly when i was in my room every Every night I would end up looking up. I had the box where my original vinyl Everlast boxing gloves came in. <laughs> I, had, I had magazines and some books, Dao Jeet Kune Do and some Bruce Lee magazines. And I'd always say, okay, just, just 10 minutes. And I'd get that thing down and I would study voraciously for 10, well, it'd be half an hour, right? And then I'd put it back and I'd go back to studying. So yeah, I just had that thing. And then it was Guru Dan. Actually, even I should say it was before Grudan mentioned it to me. I was training at the academy in Marina del Rey right after college. Mm -hmm. So I'd go during the summers back to Torrance. And then Marina del Rey school opened up. And so on the weekends, on Saturdays, I started training there. And I basically spent all the money I had to train because I was that impoverished. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I used money to eat. And I didn't have to pay rent because I lived in this incredibly horrible place taking care of dogs and cats. I lived in a parking lot of a dog and cat hospital in downtown wow. L.A. For five years, I lived in a little camper trailer. And I traded taking care of the dogs and cats at night, just checking in on them for having a place to stay. There are a lot of stories about that place, I'll tell you that. It was <laughs> I'm really sure there are. a good area. But anyway, I went to train over there and I met a guy named Mark Makita. He was training on Saturdays. He trained a lot. And he turns out he was a professional martial artist. He made his living teaching private lessons 
phenomenal. And to this day, I mean, this guy is just, Mark Makita is phenomenal. And the first time we did some Sombrata together, I guess he felt that I had potential. And he said, hey, do you want to train outside class? I said, yes. And so we'd get together a couple times a week and we'd train three or four, sometimes literally, we'd train six hours straight at this park. And he's the one that brought me along and he actually showed me that it was possible. And we were talking one day. He said, well, you know, what do you really want to do with your life? Because you know, <laughs> here's, here's some guy living yeah. in a camper trailer yeah, and a dog and cat a dog parking lot. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'd really love to teach martial arts, but you know, I can't do that. And he says, well, why not? And that was it. Right. That was it. So I thank you, Mark. Because of that conversation, we, you can trace those dots back. That's interesting. To that moment, to that exact conversation that arguably changed your destiny or your life. Isn't that a good lesson? That, that is a great lesson. We have a different thought all of a sudden. Suddenly, right. a different thought puts us on a different path. You had a thought one day, like, hey, how about we have a podcast? I mean, how about you? How did you get started? What got you on your path? Oh, I was just a dumb kid, and they threw me in shoot. <laughs> I don't remember if, I, if I, they asked me or if I wanted to do it. I have no recollection. But then it was just I loved it. And there was no real thing that drove me into it. But I remember loving it, being a small kid and all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, just always practicing. I may have shared this on the radio. I was a big fan of professional wrestling when I was a kid. Yeah. I had no idea that they were worked. You know, and I had gotten into a couple fights at school and finished off a couple fights with a couple drop kicks. Oh. <laughs> I became a legend. <laughs> no one told me you're not supposed to drop kick some kid into the lockers, but but it worked. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Right. I, I said, wow, this shit must be good. That's so funny, but that's how it works. So, when, <laughs> so after that conversation with Mark, how long was it before you opened up your actual own place? That's a good question. So that conversation must have been, I'm thinking, 88, somewhere around there. Like yeah, 87 or 88. But I wasn't an instructor. So I actually, to make a long story short, I lived in that trailer. I got a job so I could make enough money for food and training and gas so I could get around. Yeah, yeah, very high expectations. <laughs> oh, extremely high. It's like incredibly high. And I'll tell you, when I was a couple years in, mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking it was two years into that thing. Well, you know, it was miserable conditions. I mean, literally the last two years, every night when I went to bed, I heard gunfire. Oh, every gosh. single night because it was the height of the gang wars in LA. It was a height of the gang activities. And literally every single night, I was out in the parking lot. There's the street, a little alleyway, and then the parking lot behind the, the veterinarian's place. Mm -hmm. And there was a house directly across the street that I could see from inside the parking lot. And one night there's a drive-by right there. And I happened to be out in the parking lot when all these guys drive up and they lit up the house and then they took off. When they started lighting up the house, I ran as far as I could from that thing. And then, you know, it was like a, a two-minute pause, and then all the everybody's jumping in cars and taking off after them and all. But, you know, that's the neighborhood I lived in. Did your parents ever go, Burton, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, my parents, I actually had them come out one time. And <laughs> I remember it was my father, my mother, and my youngest sister. And so she must have been in her late teens at the time. Yeah, she was probably, uh, yeah, maybe about 14, 15. And I remember my mom, I remember the look on her face, but she didn't say anything. My dad yeah. was stoic. I know what he was thinking. He's like, well, good for you. This is good for you. It's going to toughen you up. He was a tough guy. And my sister started crying. <laughs> yeah, so, but. My dad told me probably every time I talked to him on the phone or if I went to the house, every single time he'd look at me and say, when are you going to get a real job? Well, <laughs> I still get that, by the way. Right, dude. <laughs> <laughs> what the uh, fuck are you doing with your life? Come on. Yeah, and so, yeah, that, that was, uh, uh, I didn't mention that when I was in 
college, so I was pre-med. The honors program was writing and literature, and then the biology part was pre-med. And so the problem was that I started getting sick, and I had some digestive issues, and it would get bad, and then it would get better, and get really bad, and then it'd get better, and all. And so years later, they realized it was something called ulcerative colitis. People know about this now. Back then, they didn't even know what it was. They couldn't figure it out. And to make a long story short, I was so sick. And it was because of stress because you know, I'm playing baseball and I'm doing the honors program and I'm doing biology and I'm trying to hold this and I'm doing martial arts on the side on my own. And so it made me I got so sick that I couldn't go pre-med because my friends that were a year ahead said, man, you think undergrad is stressful? Med school, it's 100 times more stressful. So I'm like, oh, you know, if I do, I'm going to die. I'm actually good. You know, I'm going to pass away because I would lose weight and gain some back. I lose. It was bad. That's what got me in that trailer. And I was so sick. I didn't want to really have to do a full time job and all. And I love the martial arts. That's another thing. You look back and go, wow, good thing I was sick. Otherwise, <laughs> I wouldn't have done martial arts, right. uh, especially like that. So, yeah, I just dedicated myself to training. So back to the instructor thing, when I started teaching. All I would do is I'd work a part-time job and I would go train Grudan. So at that time, I think it was, he taught 18 classes a week, I believe, at the IMB Academy. He taught four classes at a junior college, Harbor College in Harbor City, California, or San Pedro, actually. And then he taught at the Marina Del Rey Academy. And so I went at every single class he taught. Every single one I would be at for years and years. And one day he came up to me <laughs> and you know, grew Dan doesn't like to criticize anybody. He doesn't like no, to just a nice guy, isn't he? And not even just criticize, like criticize is one thing, but critique when you say, Hey, you know, you should really do this for your own good. It's not really a criticism, but he didn't even like to critique people. He just like, you know, just keep training, just do your best, keep going and, and you're going to get it. And he came up to me one day before class and he's about to start class and he goes, Oh, I had a question for you. And I said, yes. And he said, are you going to keep doing that? I, you know, I'm doing this. I'm at every single class. He can't get rid of me. Right. And he says, <laughs> are you going to keep doing this? And I said, yes, I am. He goes, oh, okay. Uh, you're a apprentice instructor now. Okay. class. Let's start. <laughs> That's so great. That's a great story. Right. And he just left me in a stupor there. And then we started class. So with that, when he would leave, if he couldn't make a class and I would teach classes for him and I would fill in, which looking back now, you know, teaching ourselves, we're like, oh, that was convenient because any class he couldn't teach, he knew I was going to be at anyway. Right. <laughs> so I always had this guy, but he, he saw that I was sincere and really applying myself. And so, yeah, that's how it started. But I didn't open my own school until my own full-time school was in, I think, 92 yeah, it was 92. I, I opened a school in Long Beach, California. That's scary. You could be the greatest martial artist on the planet and be the poorest because oh. it's a whole different skill set. Isn't that true? Well, I, I did something brilliant. You will love this. You'll <laughs> love this. I, brilliant. I found this place in Long Beach and I was, I was always looking. You know how, tell me, do you do this? You're walking down the street or something. You see a, a vacant storefront. Don't you always look in and go, wow, that'd be a great martial arts. Oh, show. absolutely. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. We've, we've looked at thousands, haven't we? No and, doubt. You know, I'd put that there and the ring would go over there. You know. So I looked in this one and it said, for rent, inquire two doors. I was getting some shirts at a screen printer and the door, the one next to them was open. And I looked and I'm like, wow, that would really be, that's a big open space. That's beautiful. Of course, I couldn't afford it. There's no way. I had started to earn a little money, and so I, I you know, I had maybe two thousand dollars because for five years at that trailer, when I lived there, I had two hundred dollars in my bank account at all times. And if somehow I would make some extra money, something would happen to the car. I would only have two hundred dollars at all times. So now I had bumped it up some years later, ninety-two, so I had like two thousand dollars. And so I went and I asked the guy. He said. 1200 bucks a month. If you let me use part of it as storage, it'll be $800 a month. And first month free. I can afford this. I can actually afford this thing. I couldn't believe it. And so I thought, oh. 
And just like that, I said, okay, I'm going to open the school. Then this is how savvy I was about business. Uh -huh. He goes, okay, yes. Yeah, so just 800 first and last month's rent. I'm like <laughs> last month's rent, first and last. I didn't even know about what that. that. Was. So sure. now I had to scramble to get a much. <laughs> I was terrible. So here's the brilliant thing I did. I signed a lease for the school, started to you know make it into a school, and then I bought a book about martial arts business, which I should have done before I opened the school. <laughs> that was a good idea. Yeah. Kind of got that in the wrong order. So I, I realized like one of the things that said location, you know, ideally you step outside the school, the front door, you look down the street and you should be able to see somewhere a McDonald's or a Jack in the Box, something like that, because they've yeah. already done the demographic work for you. And of course, there was nothing like this in this area of Long Beach. I was very comfortable in bad areas. And so I opened a school in a bad area. And the second thing they said was, OK, do people in that area do martial arts? Well, the answer was no. And the third mm -hmm. thing was parking. You have to have plenty of parking. I had ah. two parking stalls. Ah, uh, Right. Just terrible. But, you know, whatever, however this works out, if it's meant to be or I wouldn't have opened if it was anywhere near Rudan's Academy or the IMB Academy. Sure. So it was is quite a ways toward Long Beach. I'm sorry, Long Beach is like halfway between Inasano Academy and Orange County. And Long Beach was not affluent and it was not, you know, people just tended not to do martial arts. But there were all these people, it turned out, in Orange County who wanted to train at the academy, but it was too far. Mm. And so everybody drove 20 to 30 minutes to get to my school, at least. And we had people coming on the weekends, came from San Diego to drive an hour and a half to take class on the weekend. Thankfully, it worked. Sure. Uh, and I met wonderful, wonderful people. Gosh, just amazing. So that was my first full-time school of my own. First place I actually taught was at USC. At, and I started a Kali Academy or a Kali Club, USC Kali Silat Club there. And I just started teaching. And I uh, same thing. I found that I just love teaching. And I had some amazing people. Let's see. The Kali 86, 96, 96. 35 years ago, I have a lot of friends from that club to yeah. this day. I mean, a lot of them, and they're still wonderful people. And somehow I, I influenced them through teaching martial arts, even though, I mean, only from that Kali Academy, there are two people that are full-time make a, a living at martial oh, arts. Wow. Isn't that something? That is something. Yeah. And then I was teaching Thai boxing and, and such, but it was mainly Kali and Silat. I teach Thai boxing, and then I was teaching JKD to certain people. And for whatever reason, I was really into Colleen Sealot at the time. That's what I opened. That's your, that was your favorite thing? Yeah, that, at that time, yes. At that time, sure. Uh, now, I mean, that's hard for me to pick now. I love like, How could yeah. you pick? It was, what would you choose if, you know, if you were in a fight? What would be that secret technique you would do? <laughs> you know, yeah. what, how would you, how, it's like your children, I guess. How would you decide? Whether it would be Silat or would it be Muay Thai or would it be BJJ? I don't think I don't think I can make that decision. No. You know, it's interesting to me that you, Jim, started with judo because that is a competitive martial art where you actually yeah. are always going against a resisting opponent. And it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's what it is. That's what martial arts is. And in any athletics, you know, we're trying to develop ourselves to perform at the best. And we use whatever we can. I mean, the first person that taught me the JKD concept was my father, and he had me playing on three different baseball teams at the same time when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. And so if I was on three different baseball teams simultaneously, three different leagues, I had at least six coaches. And yeah. of course, they're all telling me different things. And he told me, he goes, what you do is you listen to everybody. You try it out. Use what works best for yourself. That is a pretty brilliant insight. Because back in at that time, I don't believe that was done in, in baseball. So my son plays. He's a senior in high school now. And growing up, he played on three or four travel teams. And the same thing applied. But back at that time, I believe that would have been pretty unique. Isn't it? I mean, you had to go quite a ways to get in three different leagues at the same time. And uh, he, yeah, he just wanted me to play as much. So when I started doing JKD... I see this is my mind. I'm like, oh, this is exactly the same as baseball. 
like I see the way you do JKD and all, it's very combative, right? And sure. at the at the JKD at the Kali Academy, J Kali Junfan Kung Fu Academy, it was a fight gym. You go in there and it looked like a boxing gym, but it was for martial arts. And people were going there to learn how to fight. I think a lot of people have now they now teach it in a way where it's sort of a, like I say it's it was a fighting art and now it's a lot of times it's a museum piece. Is would you agree with that? I would. That's a good way to look at it. I would never thought of it that way, but it's so true. Right. And they, it's more about categorizing each technique and showing the combinations of each technique and knowing all the names, the nomenclature. So, you know, that goes back to biology. It's like in biology, there's part of it that's not about how something functions, an organism or a flower. Let's say you, can't, you find some bug, right? Some new insect. It's more about categorize okay it had it's this you know species and phyla and genus and all this so you categorize it and then you look at each little part and you catalog it and you describe what each little part is and you know its legs are this long and it's this angle and all this sort of thing and i think when we do that in martial arts we don't get the essence of actually the, the fighting art so what i was saying is you know if you're going to really categorize something like that in science what's the first thing you do is you kill the bug you gotta kill it <laughs> you know you instead of just watching it be alive and go oh wow look at how that thing moves and it's flying and it's doing this and all i mean that's what the, that particular insect is but if you really gonna break it down you gotta kill the bug and oh, that cool. kills the art right so right. yeah i think for us if we keep it combative then it, the art lives, and naturally, we're going to want to take anything we can. Like, oh, BJJ, ah, that's not JKD. Wait a second, it makes me better. Some guy took me down and mounted me and, and armbarred me. I don't want that to happen again. Right. Right? Yeah, it's a very organic sort of thing to me. But that's where I, when I started training in JKD, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is really like athletics because it's about trying to become as effective as you can with what you have as a, a person mentally, uh, psychologically, and physically. Now, Burton, you have written, what, four books, I think it is, or more than that now? I have four books published, four and books I have published. one that should be probably published later this year, toward the end of the year. So, yes. Is there like a whole process behind that? Is someone going, hey, you should write a book on this? Or are you coming up with the concept and kind of just fleshing out these seemingly random thoughts in your brain and putting right. it down on paper? <laughs> Highly random. Highly <laughs> random. Right. <laughs> uh, well, the first book uh, was done with Inside Kung Fu, so unique publications, and I was writing a column for them. So Every time we do things, right, when you do a project, when we write something and make a video, it forces us to be introspective and, and really study the material deeper. And so it's such a good exercise for us to actually have to look at everything, regurgitate it and put it out, hopefully into something that people can understand and make them better. So after I made my first videos, I just want to mention there's a, a JKD instructor named Steve Grody who was ahead of me. Yeah, just fantastic. Really good person. And, you know, a lot of times there's this, you know, there can be infighting and rivalries. And of course, we've all experienced that, you know, people trying to sabotage you and all this crazy stuff, which uh, I just don't understand. But Steve had done something with Inside Kung Fu. Somehow he was hooked up with him and he did some a video on trapping, I believe it was, uh, some different things with JKD. And they asked him, Hey, is there somebody else that might, you know, you might suggest to do a video? And he recommended me. Now, see, Steve could have just said, no, I don't know anybody. And, you know, just kind of keep that niche to himself at that time. But he was generous enough. And I think it's just when we're ourselves helpful to each other and sincere, you know, people will help you more often. And that's what got me in there. And then after I made the videos it just so happened it, it happened to be popular and so i asked if i could write a column they asked for a sample i wrote the column and the editor said well if, if you write a column like this 
you're going to be able to write here for a long time. Because I, I did a four-year writing and literature program at USC. I should have some ability to some, write something. Some skill set, yeah. <laughs> something. <laughs> something <laughs> from that college. Yeah, so it was because of that that I approached them about writing a book. And that was, oh my gosh, what a process that was. Man, I tell you, I procrastination, I put that <laughs> book off and I would write some and then, oh, it was so painful that I'd wait and I'd put it off and put it off. And finally, I got it done. I'll tell you a funny story. You're familiar with Tony Robbins, the of course inspirational. He's great, right? I got his audio tapes and I was listening to them and that helped me. That original set. That original, I bought them too. <laughs> right. It was brilliant. And that really, that it was because of that, that I finished that first book. Cause I would listen to it. And I, Oh gosh, I guess I better go do some writing on this book. It was really that book that, I mean, that uh, audio series that helped me. And I'll just tell you, you'll understand this years later after I was married, my wife, Sarah and I, and she, by the way, is a phenomenal martial artist now. I mean, just, mm. Wow, talk about a tiger. She is really, really good. We were going to do uh, a camp up in for Kelly Warden in Wenatchee in Washington. So we had to fly into Seattle and, and drive a couple hours to get up there. Yeah. And so I thought, hey, how about we, we haven't listened to Tony Robbins tapes in years. How about we take them and on the, the trip, we'll put it in. Because we had started them and we had done maybe five cassettes or six and somehow you know we stopped right yeah. we just somehow we stopped and we just didn't get back to it so it'd been maybe a year or something that we hadn't listened i said hey this is our time we can get restarted on this, this is going to help so we get in the car we start driving put in the first tape the the like tape six that we had hadn't gotten to we put it off and here comes tony robbins voice welcome back now we're going to talk about <laughs> procrastination that's a good impersonation. That's awesome. <laughs> but procrastination. Like, right, are you kidding thing. me? I should have listened to this before. <laughs> right. That's so true. Right? Oh, yeah, that's but, a great story. Yeah. But that, so that, that book worked out, and then we had other books. Oh, uh, that, very successful. And as a JKD Unlimited, we're going to kind of get to the end. How did you come up with this formation? You have the Sea Lob for the Street and the uh, Battlefield Collie. I mean, it's great stuff. And was this. Just your expression of everything you've kind of learned throughout the years. So JKD Unlimited was basically, you know, the JKD symbol is using no way is way, having no limitation is limitation. So that's unlimited. And I thought, well, we're unlimited. We're going to look at everything and not limit ourselves just to this or just to this or just to this. But then we're going to run it all through pressure testing, sparring and all and make sure it all works. Because I had the whole experience with MMA where I couldn't make my C-Lot and all work. Then years later, after, again, back to the Richard Bastillo thing, well, yeah, you know how to fight. When I really knew how to fight in all the ranges, then all these arts like, oh, I see. You can use this here. Oh, you can use this here. And it's actually functional now. And this is how you can actually use it against a resisting opponent. So, yeah, JK Limited, that's the overall thing. And then we have different modules. We have the Kali, Battlefield Kali Stick and Knife and uh, Sword. And again, it's just pressure tested. So it's sparring based. So it's distance learning, but sparring based. Because what do we do in our classes? You have somebody that's going to fight or whatever. You're going to teach them technique. So you explain all the technique to them. And then you have them drill it. And then you have them spar it. So that's what's on the videos. You learn the techniques, show you how to drill it, and show you how to spar it safely. Because sparring is not fighting. It should be sparred safely. Right. And then uh, off you go. Uh, it's just like class. And so I have logs that anybody that gets it, you have to actually log a certain number of sparring rounds in that particular type of sparring. For example, with the stick, maybe it's only the hand you're hitting or hand and head only or hand and leg only or full sparring. And then once you get a certain number of rounds in, I know you're probably good. So they, they send the video in, I review it and I I, and I give them feedback. Say, hey, you know, your head should be back a little more. Or your hand's not moving enough or whatever it is, plus telling what they're doing correctly. And, you know, it, I did it as an, as an experiment with a, the collie to see if it would work. And sure enough, these guys are getting really, really good at sparring. And so I expanded it to other things. 
the whole for the street thing, what that's about is like, okay, we take C-Lot and people go, yeah, C-Lot is for the street, right? Well, when I say for the street, I mean functional for the street, like it's going to save your life. And so I take C-Lot and I run it through, again, the MMA sparring. It's like, what can we use from C-Lot that works if you know how to do MMA sparring? And it turns out in the clinches, if you have a decent clinch, you can add so much C-Lots and the, the entries. And, it, and again, we, we realize that there's a sparring mode or a fight mode, but then there's an all-out attack mode that people do on the street. And a lot of arts like C-Lot and Wing Chun and uh, of course, original JKD just works great for that. And that's amazing that JKD works great for uh, sort of a standoff sort of thing where you're at distance and it works for sudden attacks. But then, you know, we just all pressure test it and make sure it's in a, a format where people can learn it safely, spar safely and actually get good at it and have fun doing it. Then teach it to other people and hopefully help their school. To maintain the excellence of that program, obviously everything goes through you, or do you have guys out there that can certify people under you, or is it just all 100% go right through you? So until someone becomes an instructor, all their tests go through me. And then when they become an instructor, they can test everybody, and I trust them to do that. But the instructor test goes through me still, because I want to make sure that we keep that standard extremely high. And over the years, what I found is that when people do this kind of sparring, I have a high standard to be an instructor. You know? And so when they get there, and it doesn't depend on physical attributes, they just have to be good. When they get to that level, then they already have a high standard just ingrained in them. It's like, oh, this is what we need to do. And so it's, I've never, ever had somebody send in a test for their student to become an instructor that I looked at and I go, oh man, this is just not the standard. Never. It's always really, thankfully, really, really good. I sure appreciate all the people will do this because you know, it's not, this is not the easy way. The way you train, that's not the easy way. No, not at all. It's the effective way. And I just have to say, looking on your, your Facebook page and I saw some of the sparring, like boxing sparring, man, how beautiful to see. <laughs> yeah. No, really, I'm telling you, you know what? Because it's one thing to see people sparring in the ring. Okay. Right. It's another thing to see the head movement, the footwork, the tactics. They are playing chess they at are. full speed. And it, I, I have to commend you. It was just Thank you. beautiful. So, <laughs> Did you no, really? catch? I appreciate that so funny. Did you happen to catch my fighter's last fight with that knockout on there by any chance? I did not see the knockout. Oh, uh, that was good. It was a 35-second knockout. <laughs> really? Perfectly oh. timed. I'll have to send you. Perfectly timed. He slips an uppercut. Uh, excuse me, slips a jab, uh, like almost changes lead, comes up under with the uh, uppercut to his jaw, knocked the guy out in like 35 seconds. It would have been sooner if the ref didn't give him extra time. But yeah, the, and I appreciate the compliment. It was very kind of you, but we do work it incessantly. Uh, I'm constantly drilling the goddamn basics over and over. Tackett talks about that. I already know this, Coach. I already know this. People will say to you, you don't know shit. <laughs> you got to just keep doing it. You know, if somebody sees me out, outside here in my carport you know hawaii we don't there are garages but most people have carports because of the weather if you saw me out there practicing you know yeah what are we going to practice we're going to practice we're practicing the straight lead or our jab our cross our footwork and it's just basics done well right i mean if we're if we're training to fight if we're training to fight you know grudan in asana always talked about how the best basketball players in the world are going to do layups and free throws before the game they're going to practice layups they're going to practice free throws doesn't matter how good you get. We're constantly honing that edge to keep it sharp. You're well-respected. You're, you're a, a very likable guy, well-spoken. You seem to have completely stayed away, at least in my knowledge, from any BS or social media kind of controversy, like fight with someone. This guy sucks. No, you suck more, that kind of stuff. You, you just avoid that altogether. Like I would imagine at some point someone must have tried to be no. an ass to you. <laughs> no. Oh. Absolutely. It's happened many, 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 many times. And I'll tell you what happened with me is I, when this started happening way back when, and this happened to Guru Dan, you, you, I mean, you're familiar that, you know, that Guru Dan constantly, you know, gets attacked by different people. And he is such a good man. He's, and he's very sensitive. It really hurts him. And I was able to observe you know, think looking at him, you know, I'm training with him and I hear somebody has said something and I can see how it hurt him. 
And I'm thinking, gosh, why would he? I mean, I, it, I would, you know, that wasn't too happy about hearing about that stuff. But on another uh, point from a distance, I'm looking, well, that guy is nothing, has nowhere near the level of Guru Dan. Why would we even pay that guy any, any mind? All right. right. So that was one thing. But then when I got my videos came out and I started, well, here it came, man, it came oh. down on me. Mm. And it, and I felt really bad because there were people actually I respected that were saying all these things about really? me. Oh. Yeah. And I, I felt bad about it. Like there were JKD instructors and all, and I, I felt really bad. And I never said a word to Guru Dan. And one day he comes up to me before class and this is what made all the difference. He says, I hear people are saying a lot of stuff about you. And I said, <laughs> yeah. And oh. I remember feeling bad about it. And I, right. I think I was maybe, you know, kind of sulking. Like, oh, yeah, it's true. And he looks at me, he goes, just remember, they only tackle the guy with the ball. Ooh, that's a good line. God darn, that's brilliant. So true. That's what made the difference. I'm like, oh, I guess this is part of the game. If I'm actually out there doing and of course over the decades we we know you know that when you try to do something you try to push the boundaries and you try to make something better or whatever it is there are going to be people that don't like it and there are going to be some people that actually attack you but that's okay that means that we're actually doing something right we're yeah we're affecting a lot of people positively though so burton if people want to get a hold of you what's the best way to get a hold of you you to can get involved in your videotapes books or whatever it might be yeah every you can go to jkdunlimited.com and that there you can send an email and we will answer. Sarah will often answer that. I love training. I love teaching. I mean, I'm so passionate about my own training and improving myself, practicing every day. And so I feel like I'm, you know, we're on the same path. I'm just maybe ahead of some people who haven't had as much experience. I just want to help people enjoy this because it's been so good for my life as a human being. And again, going back to that seed of that deduction and that horrible experience, this has made all the difference for me to be able to live a healthy life and be proud of myself and do good right. things and have good friends. So I want to help other people do the same. So I make myself very available. I've had people tell me, he said, hey, you know, you should never answer anything like Facebook Messenger. Never answer that. <laughs> you know, and, You're too much of a star. Right, I should be yeah aloof and you know make them want you and not, right. Like, can't right. we just be available, please? I, right. I'd like to be able to get some feedback. So yeah, I answer my Facebook Messenger and also you can contact me however you like. I'm here to help. So what is the future, Holbert? What's next on the agenda for you? Well, we have that BJJ for the Street book coming out through Black Belt Magazine, Century Martial Arts, probably later this year. So it's all, the book is finished, all the photos are shot, captions done. So they're doing the layout now and getting ready to publish that. End of last year, BJJ for the Street program came out through BJJFanatics.com. And it's inexpensive. They always have coupons. And again, I really want people in the BJJ world to, to do functional self-defense instead of the, the make-believe... <laughs> I'm right. just going to say the make-believe self-defense, you know, that's sure. the normal thing now. I just want them to actually add weaponry into the rolling and be aware of that and a lot of things. So if people are interested in that, I really like that program, the way it came out. And then I have a clinch for the street. So clinching, you know, you don't have to go to the ground, yet it's grappling range that happens. Sure. And if you clinch well, you have a huge advantage, but you have to be aware of the weaponry also and the multiple opponents and the foul tactics. So I highly suggest people want to check that out. I, I just want people to be able to train like that. Got seminar tour this this summer and I'll we'll put things out about that. But sure like to come out and visit you and uh, awesome. train together, you know? That would be fantastic. We'll uh, have to make those. And little shot, one of my favorite DVDs you've come out come out with was I uh, choke them out. Matter of fact, I just watched it the other day, getting ready for class, and they yes. go, where do you learn this? I said, ah, I just make this shit up. Exactly. <laughs> I stole it from right. you, please rise. <laughs> Look, you know, I got to be my own star, you know. <laughs> I'm fine with plagiarization, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Burton, so much for your time, brother. It is really an honor to, to have you on the show. You're a very humble guy, full of information. Uh, reach out to this guy. He's uh, He is the real deal. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. 
You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.